Hi, everybody. This is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And this is Josh Mankowitz. <laughs> it's the best. Yay. We have the Sir Mankey with the hanky, the one and only Josh Mankowitz. We are so glad to talk to you again. It feels like forever since our last interview with you. It does feel like a very long time. I know. Where'd you go, boo? Where have you been? I've been working. I've been grinding them out. You know, you see them. Yeah. We just want to see more. I know that's everybody's complaint. (laughs) It takes a lot. I just have to say to all the people who say, why aren't you on more? I'm like, yeah, it takes a long time to do these. It does. I know. Yeah, I know you've been working hard. This last episode was a two hour and it was amazing. And it covered 40 plus years. I love that. It was a great tellable story. It's a real yarn, which is what you need. Yeah, exactly. It has a lot of twists. It's unbelievable. And, you know, that's the I mean, this was sort of really the sweet spot of Dateline because it allowed us to tell the facts of the story, allowed us to tell it in a way that the audience is very familiar with, except we were able to throw in this twist, which is, you know, you have a murder, you have, you know, you have the boyfriend, Rodney, whose story is initially accepted by police. And then as our story goes on, as we tell it, subsequent police investigations, you know, different cold case detectives over the years started looking harder at his story. And, you know, you've certainly seen that before on Dateline, somebody who looks innocent at the beginning and then later, you know, they start questioning a story and then it turns out maybe that's the guy. And police certainly got to the point where they thought we, we missed him early on. And then there's this whole turn back toward him in the investigation, which happened. I mean, obviously, we're not going to say this. I mean, he was clearly somebody they were looking at very suspiciously at different times because of parts of his story that the police thought didn't add up or were suspicious. Can we ask you about parts of those stories? Yeah, totally. Oh, and we're talking about after the dance, which you should listen to our episode and watch the Dateline or just watch the Dateline. You can skip our episode. Dateline's what's important. You can also listen to it as a podcast too. On the Dateline podcast. You have three options. Choose one or two or three of the three. And then this is the supplement. Probably two, I think is best. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But this is definitely one of them. Yeah. Yes. So the two things that seemed to be most suspicious were the fact that he said they a lot instead of he and the clicking of the gun. Yes. What do you think about the they thing? Because we felt like that was kind of not that big of a deal. Well, I mean, clearly it wasn't that big a deal because it appears to be sort of a slip of the tongue. But at the time, he comes running back to the house of his girlfriend's parents. He's all covered in blood. She's not there. And he says, they took her. They've got Carla. And then he describes an attack by only one man. That definitely made police, not at the time, but later on, question his story. I think at the time, the advantage that police had in the first day or two after Carla Walker was abducted was that Rodney's affect and his attitude was so clearly not that of somebody who was lying about it. It was was clear to those original investigating officers, one of whom we spoke with on the broadcast, that he was, uh, you know, a guy who was a victim, not a perpetrator, and that he, he was telling the truth. But when you write his words down on a page and then look at them 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years later, the they becomes a bigger thing, as does the fact that he didn't go to the police. He came back to the parents' house. I mean, he wasn't in the middle of nowhere. There was a telephone right there at the bowling alley, I presume, but he didn't think to go use it. 
And then there's the timeline. This only happened a couple of minutes away from the Walker home, but he said it was 45 minutes. Now, his story is, I must have blacked out, which is entirely possible if you get hit on the head and you have a traumatic experience like that. But again, years later, that looks suspicious. And then finally, there's the thing about the gun. It is not possible for that gun to fire even without a round in the chamber. It's not possible to pull the trigger on that gun and hear a click three times. Mm -hmm. You can't do it without that magazine being in it. So those are the things that made police in the subsequent years sort of wonder whether Rodney was telling the truth. And of course, you know, add to that the weight of everything that the two of you and all your listeners already know, which is, I mean, when somebody like that is abducted, and killed, the odds are it's not a stranger. Right, right. The odds are it isn't some random person. The odds are it's somebody that knows them and cares about them, and it's about a relationship they have. Mm-hmm. And possibly the last person to have been with her, right? It happens all the time that the last person to see the victim alive or the person to find the body ends up being your killer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what Rodney was up against. Now, that said, he was never charged at any time, but they definitely did look at him suspiciously more and more as the years went by. Yeah. Kimberly and I had thoughts about the click of the gun, just because he says pretty clearly that the gun was three or four inches from his face Mm -hmm. right here. I don't know how familiar, I don't know if Rodney was in a hunting family or had shot a lot of guns, but there was a sound when he was just pulling the trigger. Because the metal hits the metal when you're pulling the trigger. You hear one definitive click and then it's, and then there's a softer noise. Yeah, it could be it. Do you think he amplified that in his brain? Entirely possible. Or he saw the guy's finger three times. And that to him meant, you know, in his head, he heard clicks. Right. I mean, we know he's telling the truth about that, but he's wrong about, you know, the gun actually clicking three times. Mm-hmm. Right. As if, you know, the same way. You're not going to get three identical clicks out of it. That That's not possible. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, I mean, he's unbelievably lucky because that's one of the few guns uh, in which the release mechanism for the magazine is at the bottom of the grip. Frequently, it's higher up. So, I mean, the clip was probably dislodged when the guy was pounding on Rodney with it. If that guy had had a different kind of gun. Wow. When he pulled the trigger on Rodney, Rodney would be dead. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Also, we thought with the they, when he's running into the house to say they, is it possible that in his mind, I mean, he's 18 or so at the time. So is he thinking she wouldn't have just been grabbed by one person? Maybe he thought it was a gang of people, but there was just one that he could identify. Is there any way that that's possible? I mean, maybe he never said that in any of his interviews. He never suggested that there was any confederate to this guy. I mean, the guy grabs Carla, beats him, pulls her out of the car, and she says, I'll go with you. Stop hitting him. Yeah. And then she says, go get my dad, which Rodney did. That's probably why he ran home uh, instead of going to the cops. Yeah. Can we ask about Rodney's interview really quick? Because the framing moment is really special because you're revealing Dateline Secrets number one. But number two. (laughs) Dateline secrets revealed. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Did he understand what you were? Okay. When you said framing, did he think that you were framing him for a murder? No, I think he, I I don't have the exact wording in front of you. I think he understood that we were, that it involved the way we were photographing him. I hope so. Okay. Because then I say to him, because you can see from the wider shot here. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I'd set that all up with me, Jorgensen, who produced that broadcast, that, you know, we had a guy, we had an interview with somebody who was going to be a central character, maybe the central character in this, and that he had at one time been under suspicion and that he, as the boyfriend and last person to see her alive, was at least in the minds of some of the viewers of Dateline going to be a logical prime suspect. So, yeah, I wanted to, I mean, sometimes we make guilty people or people who are locked up, we make them look like they're out of custody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've done that a few times. You know, it depends on the sort of cooperative nature of whatever correctional institution we're interviewing them in. Some of them will let you put different clothes on the person. Some of them won't. I was going to ask that because there was a few tweets about his collar. Some people were looking specifically at his collar and how nice it was. Yes. And maybe he's not in prison. That was a dispute that Mead and I had while we were shooting. I'm like, you've got to get in tighter than that. I want this 60 minutes tight. Like, I don't even want to see his Adam's apple. I want it framed below, just below his chin. And I don't even want his whole forehead in. And they couldn't get in that tight or, or me didn't want to. And so, yeah, you can see the guy's shirt. Now, I looked at it and I thought, could that be, in, could he be locked up? He could be, right? I mean, we definitely fooled some people by doing that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because this is the reverse of what we do. We, we Mostly we make... Convicted people look like they're out of custody. This was one of the few times that we made somebody who was not in custody and had never been charged look, at least in the viewer's minds, as if we might be interviewing them in a correctional institution. We did this actually once before in the story of a guy named Conrad Truman, who was convicted of killing his wife. This was outside of Salt Lake City. The bathtub? She was in the bathroom, yeah. And I can't remember what we called it. Now I'm trying to remember. Was it the bathtub mystery? It was not. It should have been, but it was not. Okay. Do you remember, Kimberly? There is a bathtub mystery one. It got us. We were surprised by it. Yeah, that was an interesting case because he and his wife were drinking, Conrad and his wife. She was shot and killed, and it was never clear. I mean, the possibilities were that it was an accident or that it was suicide Mm -hmm. or that she was... Yeah, I mean, that she was sort of playing around with the gun or not realizing that it was loaded or that it could go off or that that she shot herself or that she deliberately shot herself or that he did it. Mm -hmm. Was her name Heidi? Yes. Yes, I remember that one. And he was convicted of, of murdering her. Then it turned out that the officers in this small department that did not do a lot of murders had made a mistake in the measuring of the crime scene. Yes. After his conviction. Yep. And on the basis of that, the medical examiner, after some, I thought, very good work by Conrad's appellate attorneys, the medical examiner looked at that and said, oh, it's not that distance, it's this distance. The story he's telling actually is plausible. I'm changing my determination back to undetermined. He got a new trial on the basis of that. And without a homicide finding, I didn't think there was much chance they were going to convict him. And they didn't. He was acquitted. So we did the interview with Conrad. And we know that as we tell that story, that at the end of the first hour, or at least at the end of the, I think that was two hours, at the end of the first half of it, whether it's an hour or 30 minutes, he's going to be convicted in our telling of the story because there's a whole second trial and and the appeal and everything after that. So I said to the producer, different guy, this was Jay Young. I said, we need to interview him in front of a, like a cinder block wall. 
so that it will look like he's in some institution. At least the background will look that way. And we need to figure out, you know, what he's going to wear. You know, obviously, if he shows up with a Grateful Dead T-shirt, that's going to be a problem. But Conrad shows up for the interview in a long sleeve. And he served a couple of years in prison waiting for this appeal to be heard. He shows up for the interview wearing a long sleeve white thermal T-shirt. Uh, so is this what you're going to wear? And he said, yeah, you know, we used to wear these in prison because it's very cold there. And everybody's family buys them one and because it keeps you warm. It's very chilly in there. And I'm like, and you're okay wearing this on TV? And Conrad says to me, hey, man, this is Dateline. I know what's coming. I love it. Wow, he was in on it. That's, oh my gosh. I'm going to suggest again my floating head idea where it is just the person's head on a black background. Oh, yeah, floating around the screen. Yeah, that's good. And then you can't tell anything. It's like a cutout of their face, black screen. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Well, that's what I was trying to do in this episode. Yeah without using any special effects. It's the opposite of when you stole the painting from the hotel room. Exactly. To put in the background so they'd look like they were in a nice room. Exactly. I'd love that one. That guy's out of prison now, the painting guy. Oh. Oh. Yeah. So yeah, this was our attempt to mislead the audience a little bit. And I thought that sort of, you know, breaking the fourth wall and letting people see what we do and acknowledging it. No, Rodney didn't know anything about it and didn't know about it beforehand and didn't know about it right until I told him about it. Got it. And then he was like, oh, I didn't realize that. Or, oh, okay. <laughs> I can see, you see him kind of looking around a little bit. Yeah. And that fooled a lot of people, I think. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And so speaking of, you were talking about that appellate attorney that did that great measuring job, which if I remember correctly, it was something that they had misplaced the feet mark with inches mark. It was something like that, right? Yeah, it was metric to inches or something like that. It was something wild. Yeah. The, the appellate attorney was a guy named Mark Moffat. Hmm. Very sharp guy. If you need a criminal attorney in that part of the world. Good to writing it down. Okay. You never know. You never know. So the department in this case, the first investigative team that came on, right. I was shocked by... It is rare that even in nowadays cases, we see the level of evidence preservation and care that they took with this crime. This is rare, right? In those days to do what they did. Well, I mean, it probably was. I mean, because they ended up, I mean, they did a great job, the, the forensic team from back then. I mean, the Fort Worth Crime Lab back then was really, I mean, they thought of it as the best in Texas, and it might have been the best in several states. And they took a lot of care with their forensic work. And that ended up paying off 40 years down the road because that evidence ended up getting analyzed by technology that hadn't even been invented yet. I mean, that was still science fiction. And they kept it. It didn't go missing. Nothing happened. You know, it was all still here. So. Right. We all know that evidence can be, you know, misplaced Mm -hmm. completely innocently. And then speaking of also interviews, Rodney's interview was great. But the person that I really was drawn to in this episode specifically was Jimmy. Was Jim the brother? Oh, the brother. Yeah. Can you talk about him a little bit? Yeah. How was he? He was a real, he was a real good egg, it seemed like. He is. And he's had a, you know, 40 something years. I mean, that's a lifetime. But it still touched him so Like it was yesterday. So much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. You see, I mean, this is why the story of Jim Walker and the heartache that he has 
experienced since 1974 and the determination that he has exhibited since then, Mm -hmm. that's why I say there isn't any such thing as closure. We even said that in our episode. Right. This doesn't go away. Yeah. And so what? Now this guy's locked up and what? We're equal? Now we're all even? No. Doesn't bring her back. Yeah. Right. And the years that you've gone by, you know, waiting for an answer and thinking about it every day and trying to make sure that the cops don't, you know, forget about this case because of the, you know, hundreds of new murders that have come in since then. I mean, that is, that requires a a kind of dedication that is exemplary and extraordinary. And it also, you know, I mean, don't tell me that doesn't take apart, that doesn't take away from other parts of your life. Because it does. I mean, you go to family weddings and you'll still go to Thanksgiving. and You'll still, you know, see people at Christmas and on the holidays. But there's always somebody that's missing. And there's always a thing in the back of your head. And you're still planning, oh, yeah, next week we got to meet with so-and-so to get them to make sure that her case is included in the list of top 10 unsolved or whatever's going on at the moment. And this kind of heartache that comes from losing a loved one to some kind of violence, that doesn't go away. There isn't any closure. We like to think there is, you know, you know, many people like to think there is. I mean, most of the people who talk about closure, what they're really saying is, I hope you're going to be okay. Right. The fact that he stayed in that house. Yeah. Like after the parents died in case someone knocked on the door to give a confession. Right. I mean, yeah, that was his. You know, he had this sense of obligation to his sister and the rest of his family and his parents, both of whom were, you know, clearly heartbroken by this. I mean, families are. It's shattering. And he's riding a roller coaster for all of these years because it seems, I mean, the list of suspects are going from there's 20, then there's 80, and then it's maybe it's this. And then they've got two guys that seemed like very viable suspects at one point, you know, one serial murderer and then the other who confesses. You're just getting your hopes up and down. Yeah, I mean, you've got a couple of creeps that, that confess to this thing. You know, you're, why look at gift horse in the mouth? I mean, they're, you know, but it turned out. Not to be the case. How often in your experience have you seen these people that confess to crimes that they didn't commit? Not that often. What you see more often is people who confess to crimes because law enforcement has talked them into it. Mm-hmm, right. Or they saw no other way out. I mean, that's a false confession. Absolutely. Right. I'm going to say that that's different from what this was, which was someone who was not pressured to confess to doing it. It was not being interrogated and, you know, couldn't use the bathroom and couldn't make a phone call. And I mean, there was nothing, none of that going on here. Right. This guy was drunk and decided to confess to a murder that I guess he'd read about. And, you know, the other guy didn't confess, the serial killer. He confessed to a bunch of other crimes, but they did a voice lineup and Rodney came in and picked him out, even though he didn't look exactly like Rodney did not identify him in the lineup, but he did identify his voice. I mean, Rodney had been hit in the head repeatedly. I don't know how well his memory of the person's voice would be. I mean, it was colossal trauma. And he's also spent 40-something years blaming himself for, mm-hmm. you know, not protecting this woman who he absolutely believes he would have gotten married to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he feels responsible. And, you know, the, you know, the Walker family sort of treated him before and after like a son. 
and they clearly were fine with the idea of him marrying into the family. And then when it was over, he they, they stayed in touch with him and he was still close with them. He was part of what reminded them of their daughter. In some ways, that made him feel worse over the years that he hadn't been able to fight this guy off. I mean, he said to me in the interview, you know, I, I wish it had been me. I wish she were alive and I was dead. Oh, that's awful. I... Yeah, that's a, a bad way to feel for, you know, most of your life. Did Jim and Cindy, the brother and sister, they were talking to the police about how the blood was dried on his face and how he said they. But did they ever actually think that it was him? I don't think that either of them ever suspected Rodney. I think they did think his story doesn't make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they never took the step from that to wait, he's lying, he's involved. I'm pretty sure they never suspected him. I think they did have questions at different times, but I don't think that either of them ever believed that he was responsible. Yeah, pretty much no one who knew Rodney, I think, thought that he was responsible. Yeah. As I was saying, I mean, I think the original detectives who had the opportunity to speak with him, I think they bought his story. I think subsequent detectives, you know, were more jaded and also frequently were just reading what he transcripts of what he had said are looking at videotapes and were less trusting, you know, and I mean, everybody's less trusting now than they were in 1974. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I certainly am because of Dateline. Right. Oh, so, yeah. Blame us for everything. <laughs> Pretty much. I guess I had a couple of questions about just if Rodney is brought back up as the main suspect by this last group of investigators, right? It's like in 2018 or something. I don't understand because at that point, we'd already discovered that there was DNA from someone else on the dress, apparently in the form of sperm. So how was he even a viable suspect at all at that point after they already knew somebody else's DNA was on the dress? Does that make sense? I feel like that would rule him out. Yes. Okay. A couple of things. First of all, whether or not there's a DNA sample on the dress, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's from the killer, right? It probably it is, but it doesn't have to be. Her sister had worn that dress the year before, I believe. Oh. Oh. Right? And we know DNA doesn't have a timestamp on it. Second, if Rodney's story doesn't add up, Rodney's story doesn't add up. And you have to, if you're doing an exam, if you're doing an investigation, you have to look at that issue on its merits and not say, we're not going to look at why this guy's story doesn't add up because it isn't his DNA. Ah. You can't look away for that reason, but you're right. I mean, that the DNA not matching early on is you know pretty clearly a sign that it was somebody that wasn't Rodney. And they definitely went back and forth on that. And I think that, I mean, I think that the officers felt better. You know, nothing about Rodney's demeanor said, I'm a killer and I got away with this. Right. At all. And that was actually, from my standpoint, as a storyteller, that was the hardest thing about this because everything about Rodney says he's honest. I didn't do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Rodney does not come off as a guilty guy who's lying about it. No. He comes across as a guy who's telling the truth. And so. Absolutely. It's hard to make that guy seem guilty, even though we did it by photographing him tightly. Yeah. I mean, if he'd been, if he'd been a less compelling character. Yeah, Uh, that job would have been easier. But he's Rodney pretty obviously telling the truth, I thought. I agree. I was team Rodney the whole time until they started going in so hard on him. And the one detective said, I am sure he is the killer. And I thought, oh, my God, I was wrong. And you've seen enough Dateline to know this arc, which is 
you know, there's the murder. He's discounted as a suspect. Years go by, technology changes. Suddenly it's pointing at the last guy you thought it was and somebody that you're hoping it isn't. I mean, we've done that. I was heartbroken. Like, Rodney, I was rooting for you. We've done that before. So, I mean, you know, that's why we were doing it because I knew the audience would sort of lean into that piece of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's the classic. Can we talk about the genealogical DNA? Have you ever sent in your DNA, by the way, to a genealogical site? I did. Inconclusive? What happened? <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> there was not a single surprise. No, and no criminals. Oh. They never came to you and said, you have a distant cousin. No, nobody said it was my, my ethnic makeup is precisely what my parents told me it was <laughs> growing up. It was a little disappointing to realize. Wow. I'm so sorry. I know, right? I kept thinking like, oh, I'm going to find out, you know, this or that. No, no. Mom's family from Wales. Dad's family from Poland. That's the way it goes. Can we, oh, so we should move on to Glenn. Okay. First of all, Glenn's wife. Wow. Huh? Is she a hero or what? Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, who remembers like that far back? I know. And, you know, we were together. She said, no, we weren't. Yeah. No, we weren't. No, you were alone that whole week. Yeah. Memory like a steel trap. Could you imagine being married to her? Oh, my goodness. Right. Honey, would you mind if we talked about this later? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, my God. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Yeah, she's like just volunteering all this. No, 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 no. I was away that week. Don't you remember? She must have been shocked when this whole thing came up, though. And then all these other cases they're looking at for him. Or maybe she knew, suspected the whole time and she was throwing him under the bus on purpose. Yeah. That's the question that is unanswered. And that is something that we would examine if we end up doing one of these other cases. If, in fact, those are proven to be connected to him because at the moment he's a person of interest in those cases, but I don't think there's any DNA or we'd know by now. So I think they're going to do that investigation in other ways. And, you know, if that's true, I mean, let's say hypothetically, it turns out that, you know, yes, he was responsible in that. Then the question is, okay, so when she throws him under the bus for Carla Walker's murder, is she just trying to be helpful or is she actually finally lowering the boom on this guy she knows is a murderer? And I don't know the answer to that. And we don't know whether he's really guilty of those other murders. Were any of the other murders, the three that specifically that they're looking at, were any of those women found propped up against a building? No. No, none of them were. So it's a totally other one that he's talking about. So the whole issue of who was lying against a building is we don't know what he's remembering. Wow. And he wouldn't talk. He wouldn't talk to us. All right. So I have a question. Do you know what his job was? What his occupation was? Was he a truck driver of any kind or someone that would travel? He was at one point. I love how, and I, I realized this from uh, being online the other day on Twitter while the broadcast was on the air, which is that long haul trucker is now synonymous in the minds of the true crime audience with murderer, right? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So let me just say, to all you long haul truckers out there who are listening, maybe listening to this podcast as you roll across America, I do not think that you're all murderers. In fact, I know that you aren't all murderers. Absolutely not. But frequently, that is the suggested job for all sorts of unsub murderers. The girls on the West Mesa in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Somebody's daughter was the episode for Dateline. You know, you can see 
from uh, Google Earth, you can see the, the grave sites popping up on the desert outside of town. And the speculation was that the guy was a long haul trucker and that he came through now and then and committed some murders and then drove off. So yeah, long haul truckers are getting a very bad rap around here. So sorry. I meant anything that travels. Was he a salesman of any kind? I don't know his full employment. Hmm. And I know that they are cold cases now trying to, I'm sure they're going back over, you know, every tax return he ever filed and, you know, anything else they can find to figure out where he worked over the years. And of course, where I would start is with Mrs. McCurley, since she has a wonderful memory and she's very helpful. Yes. There you go. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you also, in your experience, do you feel like this is not a one-off? It's hard to believe that it's just this one murder that he committed. It's hard to say. I mean, again, we, we it is hard to say, and we don't know what that investigation is going to find. Uh, you know, I mean, is it plausible that this guy's response is responsible for other murders? It's not inconceivable, certainly. But we don't know. I mean, like you know, the circumstances, the, the parallels between the Carla Walker case and the Becky Martin case, and those other two cases. I mean, they're unmistakable. They're all taken from parking lots. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same guy. I'm wondering the statistics on stranger murders, if they are more likely to do it more than once, what the statistics are with stranger murders. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly what the cops were thinking even early on. I mean, long before Rodney was examined as a suspect or discarded, they were immediately thinking, this is just like the Becky Martin case. And Rodney certainly wasn't any suspect in the Becky Martin case, which is maybe one more reason why the original investigators didn't look as hard at Rodney because they're, they're part of them was thinking, this is not him. This is that other, this is the guy from last year because they were pretty similar. And it happened like exactly a year earlier kind of thing. Is that pretty close to a year earlier? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one reason why they were looking at the Fort Worth stock show every year, the rodeo that comes to town. I was shocked it wasn't involved with the rodeo because I feel like the rodeo scene is wild. I know, me too. I'm, I'm right. You just want long haul truckers let off the hook. <laughs> I do. I want it to be rodeo cowboys. Right. You think cowboys now deserve some of that blame? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the rodeo idea, which was Jim Minter's idea, the original investigator, I thought it was great, you know. But it was very smart police work, go down there and figure out, you know, who's got a police record. And of course, it was so much harder in 1974. You know, and, uh, now you know that, you know, much quicker, much faster. You'd be able to run all sorts of stuff against each other, different lists. And it's just very hard to do now. I mean, then easier to do now. Oh, yeah. It'd be just all paperwork, right? Go paperwork and calling. Well, I just, you know, I need to know if you have a record for a, John E. Smith, born, very hard to do. And some of it's on computer and some of it isn't. Some of it's searchable on computer and some of it isn't. I mean, it's the problem the FBI had for many years, which was, you know, they had a bunch of different computer systems that couldn't relate to each other. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, you know, so one database can't search another and that kind of thing. By the way, did they find out if it was McCurley who wrote those really odd letters that got delivered to the police station? No, they did not. I believe 99%. I know they didn't prove that it was McCurley. I know that. Ah, uh, okay. I mean, those letters, which for those of you who haven't watched this episode yet, 
Shame. Uh, yeah. Those are three different letters came into Fort Worth police. One of them was mailed. The other two appear to be hand-delivered. Oh. Oh. The most recent group of cold case detectives, Jeff and Leah, they found them in one of the evidence boxes. And there was no no clue as to sort of what work had been done on them. I mean, they'd been included in the evidence, but it wasn't clear, you know, if they'd been... Fingerprinted? I'm pretty sure that they've now been fingerprinted, but I'm pretty sure that there weren't, there wasn't any usable fingerprints or DNA on any of those letters. I'm pretty sure they would have looked at that. So here's the possibility. It's the real killer trying to implicate Rodney, or it's somebody that doesn't like Rodney trying to implicate Rodney, or it's somebody who just saw it on TV and believes it to be true. You know, that's the other possibility. One of the things that families of murder victims deal with, and also families of the missing deal with, is people who want to inject themselves into the narrative somehow. And sometimes they're well-meaning. Sometimes they're just reeking of evil. And sometimes they're just wrong. They're just trying to be helpful. You need to investigate Rodney. Well, and it was signed with a code, which was 10-100, 100 And we at first thought, and I think police also thought that that was some sort of internal police code, you know, like 10-4, you know, 10-8 or one of those things, but that doesn't seem to be. And 10-100 means lots of different things in different cities. And it didn't mean anything in Fort Worth. I mean, they, we asked the cops about that. They're like, I don't know what that means. They never figured that out, what 10-100 meant. But it did tie the letters together because I think they were all signed the same way. The two that were hand-delivered and the one that was that was mailed. And of course, you know, today, hand-delivered letters, well, that person would be on video, right? Not then. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's someone named Lo Lu. Lo-Lu. 10-100? Yeah. Yeah. I solved it. It may not be police code, but it also could be a long-haul trucker. 10-100? <laughs> <laughs> 10-4, good buddy. All right. Uh, I just want to make sure that the American Trucking Association. <laughs> I love the American Trucking Association and they know it. I just want to make sure they contact you and not me when this is over. <laughs> My name is Katie. I can be reached at daywithdateline.com. Thank you. But I don't think any of you are guilty. I just have questions about McCurley be having some sort of a traveling job. At one point, he definitely did do that, but I don't know for how long, and I'm not sure what his route was. Yeah. Listen, I mean, the percentage of long-haul truckers that are murderers compared to the percentage of just husbands that are murderers. Correct. There's no comparison. <laughs> right. No, just I say, long-haul truckers getting a bad rap here. Yeah. They are. We appreciate the work you're doing. Yes. Yes. Katie, do you have any more questions about the episode specifically? Is there anything that you want to tell us? That wasn't maybe included, that you wanted to be included? Rodney was not 100% sure that he wanted to do this. Mm. Is he an introvert? Seemed a little shy. I think Rodney has been beaten up by the world, literally, and then philosophically for a long time. And I think that, you know, we approached him to do this a while ago. Me did that, our producer. And I think we were not hundred percent sure that Rodney was going to do it until just a few days before the interview. He'd said yes, but then he was sort of not returning our calls for a while. And I think he was, you know, it's a tough decision to talk about this, particularly when, you know, put yourself in Rodney's position. Like you've been cleared. Maybe you have been cleared in front of the nation, but the nation doesn't really know about this case. Mm-hmm. But everybody in Fort Worth, like they know. 
They know. And your neighbors know. Nobody's doubting you anymore. Nobody's looking at you, giving you the side eye at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. So I think whether or not to go ahead with talking about this again was a decision that he came to very carefully, but I'm glad that he did. We probably could have done it without him, but I'm glad that he did do it. And he was a great interview. And it was, look, I mean, as a journalist, it was nice to be able to play some role, even a small one in saying to everybody, Hey, look, if you ever doubted this guy, don't, he was telling the truth. That's amazing to be able to help him free himself in front of everyone in Fort Worth. Yeah. So that's one thing that I was going to say. There were some really great interviews in this episode period. It it was a really interesting episode. Well done. Paul Holes is just as good looking in person as you think he's going to be. I was going to ask. That was one of my questions. Yeah, I know what's important around here. Yeah. Katie's shaking her head. My mom kept saying, can we see Paul Holes again? I don't know who I didn't. I wasn't aware of Paul Holes until this episode. And so I was schooled. I schooled her hardcore. Harshly on what's wrong with me. Yeah, what is wrong? He's a giant in the true crime industry. He's a very nice guy, too. He's also one of two podcasters that were on the episode that are not us. But we're letting that go. We're not upset. Not bitter. Right. No, I understand that. Okay. Thank you. You mean on on our episode? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. We had him and we, well, he's not, we didn't really have him there as a podcaster, but, right. but we had uh, Vincent Strange, who's done a lot of Gone Cold as his podcast. And he's great. And he was very helpful with us. And he's really got an institutional memory of the case. That's the great thing, you know, because the detectives have changed numerous times over the years as people got older and they retired. And he sort of has been this repository of information and he's really good at it. You know, look, here's some good news for the two of you and other podcasters is like more and more and more I'm doing stories in which podcasters ended up sort of influencing the story or being a force for good and helping police and helping these families. And, you know, I've done I've done some stories which police regarded the podcasters as, you know, largely nuisances and some in which they were thought of as counterproductive. But I've definitely I mean, certainly the, the Kristen Smart case. Yes. Wow. That podcast, Your Own Backyard, was integral and, and generated information for police that they otherwise probably wouldn't have had. And on this one, Gun Cold was definitely really helpful to us and I think to others, too. And I'm working on another one right now, which I can't tell you about, in which the podcast played a role. Well, I'm glad I added it to the bingo cards then, podcaster. Yes, good. Thank you. Yes, you, you should. Is there anything else you feel that I should be adding? Is Long Haul Trucker on the bingo cards? I feel like I might need to add it now. It probably should be on there. Yeah. Maybe on our extreme bingo cards. Those are for like very, that's the more challenging ones. Right. Yeah. Right. We did have your cell doors clanking shut on there. And we've used that several times. It's more in the older episodes of Dateline. Cell doors clanging shut is a real TV cliche. <laughs> it's only in the old ones. Time for that to be put out to pasture. Yeah. 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 Because you see it in like, if you have a DUI, I'm the attorney you want to hire commercials. Yes. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's in those too. And if it's in those, it shouldn't be on Dateline. That'd be my argument. Right. Well, I haven't seen it recently on Dateline, only in the classic reruns. Like we're not doing that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, before we leave the episode, I had a question. Did McCurley decline an interview? Yes, from behind prison walls. I mean, it's interesting, you know, he pleaded not guilty, right? Even though he had confessed, right? And then he goes in and they start the trial. 
And then I think they play his confession as part of the prosecution case. And I think he realizes. I'm done. Yeah. And also his kid was there. I think he had some issues as to how his son was going to perceive him and maybe didn't want to have all of that out in court. So he broke down. He confessed. He took the plea and the trial ended. Now, I know that in a lot of states, and I'm not an attorney, I know that in a lot of states, taking a plea means you are foregoing your right to appeal, right? That's one reason why prosecutors in a lot of jurisdictions like pleas, because it means this is over. You're agreeing to take 25 years and you're not going to be appealing. That's what the plea is. We won't try you. You won't appeal. Literal cell doors clanging. That's the end. Yeah. Right. Clang. Right. That's how it, exactly. Throw away the key. Insert cell door clanging sound effect here. Perfect. But in this case, that's not the case because McCurley is appealing, even though he pled. And what he's pleading is that the DNA evidence, the magnified DNA evidence, courtesy of Othram Labs, who are really sort of the unsung heroes here, I think, that that's a quirky new technology or that's going to be their argument that, you know, it's not, it can't be trusted or it's too new, you know. So is he appealing for a new trial then or just to be let out? I'm sure he's appealing for Davis conviction set aside or overturn and have a new trial. But then frequently in that situation, people who've been convicted of murder are routinely locked up pending trial. And how old is he now? Mm, that's a good question. I had the script in front of me. I know that. 70s, 80s? 78, something like that. Yeah. Okay. I'd really love to know how his wife is doing. If she's okay or, I mean, her attitude right now is going to tell us a lot about what's happened. She should start a podcast. She was a character. They both were kind of characters. That was what was so surprising. And he sort of comes around that. Yeah. When the cops walked up and he said, I didn't do a dang thing. That was not what I was expecting, I guess, what I could say. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, it's, I mean, you'd think that if you were guilty of that crime, that no matter how many years passed, Every time you saw a police officer, particularly on your lawn, looking for you, yep, mm-hmm. your heart would sink because you've been thinking eventually, I mean, you know, you got to figure he at some point read an article about how DNA was convicting people because that started in the 90s, you know, so you got to figure sometime in the last 30 years, he might have read a newspaper article about how DNA was solving a lot of uh, cold cases. And you'd think that when you saw that, you'd think you'd be unable to conceal his concern but he did he did or he's just that confident i don't he just thinks it's been too long i guess you think if you've never gotten caught you're never going to get caught which increasingly is not true and the technology that author labs is pioneering i think they can solve a lot of cases you know there's a thing i keep coming back to salt lake city there's a thing called the mvac which is this vacuum that can get DNA off of porous surfaces. Normally, like, it's got to be smooth, you know, like glass or something like that. You can get touch DNA? You can get DNA off of, you know, carpet and, you know, wood surfaces and things that are, that have a bumpy exterior. And in the past, it was very hard to get DNA off of things like that. And this vacuum, which is made by a company called MVAC, I think they're in, they might be in Sandy, Utah. I know they're in the Salt Lake City area. That's also going to solve a lot of crimes. The things that solve cold cases are changes in technology and changes in people's circumstances. You know, so we've examined plenty of changes in technology. And the other thing that, that plays here, 
and which might be the case here, as we were talking about earlier with Mrs. McCurley, are changes in circumstances. People who think, I'm not going to lie for you anymore, or I remember something, and it now seems more significant than it did then. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. I like that. Changes in technology, changes in circumstance. That's a good soundbite. That's what closes cold cases. There was so much 70s gloriousness. How much fun was that, right? The music? Gloriousness in this episode. Right. That music will not be on the web. <laughs> oh. We're, uh, for uh, rights and clearances reasons. Those are all, that's only on Dateline. We'll just strip that out for the web. Loved the music. Loved the love is a kaleidoscope themed dance. Love is a kaleidoscope. Yeah. And you, you said, come on, it's high school. Come on, it's high school. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember any of yours? We, I had a very small high school. We didn't have a prom. Oh, that's sad. Oh. Yeah, there were only 13, only 13 people in my graduating class. Actually, school dances are overrated. They're dumb. They are. Unless you don't have one. And then I think sometimes it can be like, well, I don't know. Do you feel like you missed out or you feel like it doesn't really matter? I, I tend to think that my, you know, sort of dreary high school life would have been larger the same at a giant high school. <laughs> Got it as the little tiny high school I ended up going to probably wouldn't have made any difference. What was your fashion like in the seventies? I wore a lot of velour. Mom was big on velour. So I had a couple of velour over shirts from like Lord and Taylor that, uh, yes. Yeah. That we used to wear, you know, in the early seventies, synthetic fabrics were sort of just coming to the force, Mm -hmm. you know, like I remember I had a pair of slacks that had a crease on them. The stay crease. It cut your finger on it. Like it never changed. <laughs> yeah. They were like some kind of like unique blend of, you know, wool and, you know, rubber. Yeah. You know, it just kind of, you just hosed it clean at the end of the month. It was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I had a lot of that synthetic fabric. I remember the velour. Just sweating. Just sweating. <laughs> brutal. Just brutal. What was your hair? It was big and puffy and <laughs> horrific. Yeah, it was awful. Sideburn? Wait, no, how you were young. No, no, I was young. No, I didn't know. I've never had sideburns. Did you use product in it? No, I did not use product. It was just natural. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Pretty soon, it kind of looked like Kentucky, as I recall. (laughs) There we go. It was that shape. Yeah. State-shaped hair. It's the newest thing. (laughs) I love it. Right. Home of long-haul truckers. Might be. Did you know, okay, Monte Carlo, Kimberly and I don't know. Was that a deal that she got? Big deal. The Monte Carlo at one time was the, either that or the Buick Grand National were the fastest production cars in the United States. I mean, it was a viable hot rod is what it was. Wow. Really? I mean, it was, yeah, there was a period of time and it would have been around then where that was one of the fastest, flashiest cars that was available. I I thought they looked big though. Everything was big. Everything was giant. I mean, they all had these fins and trunk on that thing was bigger than my apartment when I lived in New York City. (laughs) People used to carry like their whole houses around with them. They had everything, you know, blankets, a picnic table and, you know, a swing set. Uh, Yes. I love it. Yeah. You could bring anything you wanted. What about the LTD? Well, the LTD was always like sort of the quintessential like dad car. Okay. Okay, there we go. It's the car that your grandparents drove. But the Monte Carlo was the cool car that everybody dreamed about. And the fact that she got one, that's a family that really doted on her. Because that's a, it was not inexpensive. Uh-huh. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's not a Honda Civic. And that's a pretty cool car. Yeah, she was so small. She was looking through the steering wheel, I think. That's so fun. That's right, because she was under five feet in this car boat. Great big car, yeah. I'm not going to ask you what your fa- what your first car was, because that's a security question. That's what I want to ask, too, actually. <laughs> but that's a security question online. Is it a security question? Sometimes. What was the make and model of your first car? Well, I guess that's right. All right, well, I'm not going to say, but I will say this. My first car was a hand-me-down from my dad, who got rid of his car by giving it to me. And then he bought a Mustang convertible. Ooh. Mm. So my dad definitely had a hot rod when I was in high school, and he loved that car. And he gave me his car, which was very soon subject to a giant and famous recall because it was extremely dangerous, it turned out. What, did it explode? What happened? What? Well, I can't remember what the problem was, but I know that like everybody, like it became widely known. As a death trap? Yeah, like uh, you didn't want to have that car. Like you wanted to go in and get the recall done like as soon as possible. Wow. I can't remember what the exact issue was, but that was a big thing. So I had that car. It was a, you know, stick shift and we're big on the stick shift in my family. Did you ever get to drive the Mustang? Once or twice, maybe. But I certainly wasn't, like, going out in it. Got it. For a couple of reasons. One, my dad wouldn't let me drive it. And two, I never had a date. So (laughs) those pretty much precluded my going out for a date in the Mustang. Which is surprising because you're very in tune to... we. Kimberly and I both feel like you would give great advice to young men going out on dates in high school. You seem to... When Rodney was late for the dance and you shook your head, I thought, what a great show idea. Josh Mankiewicz, he coaches guys on their dates. And then Katie thought it could be like a Cyrano de Bergerac and you're like talking into it. Where you're in their ear and they're having... Where I'm, where I'm, yeah, where I'm giving them coaching. I like that. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is, I think we're onto something here. I also thought of another show idea, which is where you just tell people why they look guilty because you said to Rodney, I'll tell you why you're a suspect. <laughs> you did this. You did this. Yeah, that's right. He said, I don't know. Why am I a suspect? I'm like, I'll tell you why you're a suspect. <laughs> you did about six things that make you look guilty. Yeah. It's guilt consulting. Yeah. Guilt. Cons- yeah. So we have two new show ideas for you. That's good. Wow. This is like full employment when I come here. This is good. I'm ready. I do want to bring up your new Twitter profile photo, which is you and Keith. Oh, yes. For the Olymp- couples ice skating, maybe for the Olympics. Yes. And then I believe your brother, there was a photo of your brother as one of the judges holding up a zero. Yeah, I didn't have anything to do with that. Somebody else made that. <laughs> but that photo about a couple of years ago. Somebody made me a lovely sort of, the thing that was so good about it was that it it wasn't beautifully made. It was kind (laughs) of crude. Oh, there it is. Yeah, it's a woman named Jeannie Mack, and her Twitter handle is J-U-A-N-A-S-A-M, and then the number one. She made this thing for me a couple of years ago, which is me carrying Keith, and we're on skates. (laughs) She photoshopped our faces onto some other skaters and the great thing about it is it's very crude and it's hilarious yeah 
It's like the faces are cut out and taped onto a photo. Yeah. That makes it so much better. <laughs> but it really worked. And so I used it during the Olympics. I made it my Twitter picture during the most recent Olympics. And then she saw that and she's like, oh, I got to make you a better one <laughs> for the China games. I'm like, okay. So then she did this one, which is a lot better. And so this is going to be my picture during the China games. And a very good friend of mine made a different one. Also of me and Keith as ice skaters. And that's going to be the Twitter banner picture up at the top, I think, uh, if I can make that work. Keith has not been consulted under, on any of this. That's fine. I'm sure he's going to be thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> if you two were two couples ice skate during the Olympics, what song do you think that you would skate to? King of Pain. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that felt like a security question. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the nice, uh, Ty Babylonia, who was an actual Olympian, was very nice to give us some pointers on it. She's a friend of mine. She she was, wow. I wrote to her on Twitter, you know, in front of everybody. I'm like, so what do you think? She's like, don't listen to the press. Get out there. Tell your story. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that form is perfect. So it was good. I love it. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> We have a mini project that's coming on our end, which is a possible Spotify playlist for each of the Dateline hosts. So if you have any songs for your playlist that absolutely have to go on, please let us know. Otherwise, we will be making guesses and opening it up to some fans. What is Life by George Harrison? Okay. Gotta be on. Okay. That's number one. Heard that last night on the way home. But yeah, what is life without parole, right? I mean, <laughs> yep. Kind of, yeah. I love it. Do you have any ideas for Keith's playlist? Oh, no, I, I, you're going you're gonna to have to have him on. Okay. <laughs> uh, have you had him on recently? We've only ever had him on when we interviewed you and Dennis at Comic Crime Con. Really? Yeah, we've never had him on individually. We are too scared to ask. Can I ask him? Yes. On your behalf? Yes. Okay. Also, Dennis and Andrea. Katie would die if Dennis was on the show. I have some questions for Dennis that I need answered. <laughs> I'm happy to ask him. I mean, I'll ask all three of them. I feel like I got a better chance with Keith. Oh, we would owe you big time. If we didn't already. It is we who owe you. Do you want to plug anything that's coming up? I have a couple of things in production, but I don't know when they're going to be on. We're off right now until after the Olympics. Right. So, yeah, no, I don't have anything. I got podcasts coming up, but I don't know when they're going to drop. They're not done yet. And I don't have anything else that's completed and ready to go. I have one thing that's I'm going to be scripting this afternoon after I finish talking with you guys. Okay. And you've tried to stay local without traveling, you said. I have uh, I have not traveled a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done a minimum of travel. Good. We need you to stay safe. Well, we're all trying to stay safe and be careful. But on the other hand, we have to get out there, too. So that's the problem. Yeah. Are there any cases you're following right now that are not related to anything that's piqued your interest? For competitive reasons, I'm not going to answer that. Understood. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was very mysterious, and I like it very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with us. It's a joy, pleasure, honor, always. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. It's so wonderful to speak with the two of you. You know more about the show than I do. So, Do you have anything to say to fans of Dateline out there? Thank you for watching Dateline. Thank you for listening to Date with Dateline. 
<laughs> because that's how you fully understand the broadcast. You think you understand it when you watch it, but you don't really understand it until you listen to it. Until you listen to this podcast, then you will understand it. We tell you what to think afterwards. It's like the the cliff notes. <laughs> yeah. We need one that's just forensics, though, because we mess up on the science. It's the science that is our downfall. Half of our show is like, I don't understand what that is. Maybe a lawyer can call us. Can we call science? Can we call law right now? Oh, I had a long thing about DNA in this last one about how they're telling what kind of DNA. Why are the labs doing this? Yeah. I'm not good at that either. And then I get a lot of tweets. Let me explain it to you. Yeah, no, I always have to read that stuff very carefully. It wasn't my best subject, science, no. But uh, yes, uh, that's what I would say to the fans, which is uh, thank you for paying such close attention to Dateline. And you should definitely all be listening to this podcast, as well as to the Dateline podcasts. Yes, yeah. and they love following you on Twitter and how active you are, especially during the shows, the broadcast. I think they appreciate that. Well, you know, we're all, we all try and, you know, look... For a long time in television, you had no idea what the audience really thought. And you could only sort of guess that if the ratings were big, well, that meant everybody liked it. And if the ratings weren't big, that meant people didn't like it. But of course, ratings have a lot to do with what's on opposite you, before you, after you, you know, whether it's raining or snowing where you are. I mean, there's all kinds of factors. It doesn't really, doesn't always tell you what people think about what's on the broadcast at the moment. But Certainly with social media now, you really do know. I heard from a lot of people last Friday night about this broadcast, about After the Dance, in which people were talking about, you know, storytelling things that we did and also the, you know, the, what they thought about different characters and what we'd done right and done wrong. And in this case, I think people thought we'd done a lot of things right, which was, was very gratifying. Yeah. I saw a lot of tweets saying that this was the best episode they had seen in a really long time. A lot of people. I saw that too. And I had not, that's, that's not something we get every week. So that was great to hear. It's a really great episode. If people have not watched after the dance yet, I I don't know why you're this far in this episode, but go and watch it. (laughs) You must be very confused. That's right. Put your phone down and turn on the television set. Exactly. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome on the show anytime. It's always an honor to talk to you. Thanks guys. I will say this right now. I, I'll put it on the record. I will come on and dissect any episode of mine you want after it airs. Yes. <gasps> okay. Oh, the dream. That is the dream. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.